The countdown's on, MP. Damo, the biggest and best wellness summit ever is fast approaching. Don't miss out on the entertainment. The education. The edutainment that is the wellness summit. Featuring for the very first time at the summit, the Merrymaker sisters, Carla and Emma Pappas, and the 2013 Bachelor himself, the incredible chiropractor and sharp mover, Mr. Tim Robards, plus all of your wellness couch favorites. And wait for it, Damo. All 22 podcasts on the couch will be in attendance at the summit. Wow. So take your digital wellness couch experience and make it a real-life one at the transformational, inspirational, sensational 16 hours of Powerhouse Wellness Summit at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. September 10 and 11. More information and tickets available at www.thewellnesssummit.com. Now, before you go, Damo, there's a big competition on as of now. Every single person who registers before a 11.59pm on Sunday, August 14, goes into the draw to win a double pass to the inaugural 2016 Wellness Couch Awards Night. Amazing. You'll join the who's who of the Wellness Couch as we present for the very first time the best new podcast, most popular episode, most popular the host, the best hair, of course, MP, most awkward moment, and many more sensational awards at this night of fun and wellness frivolity. But you must enroll, folks, by August 14. Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Dr. Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Cowan. He discovered the work of two men who would have the most influence on his career, Weston A. Price, as well as Rudolf Steiner, working on biodynamic agriculture. This inspired him to pursue a medical degree. He set up an anthroposophical medical practice, I'm going to struggle with that all interview, um, in New Hampshire, and relocated to San Francisco in 2003. He served as Vice President of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine, and is a founding member of the Western A. Price Foundation. He's written about many subjects in medicine, including nutrition, homeopathy, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. I reckon I got that wrong so many times, but welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. (laughs) Such a mouthful, that word, especially for someone who used to have a lisp as a child like me. I'm I'm struggling to get my head around that one, but I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. Um, You've also authored some books, The Fourfold Path to Healing, um, and co-authored the Nourishing Traditions book of Baby and Child Care, um, which obviously is uh, is a fantastic book and, and one that in Australia we need to be careful about talking about some of those things because there's been some controversy here so we might even talk about that a little bit later on as well Uh, but for now Tom tell us all about your career how did you get into uh, medicine and particularly this you know particular approach to medicine that you take so um, I also uh, interestingly I just finished and about to publish a book on the heart which is probably going to be the most important book that I probably ever write. And in there, I'd actually tell this story. And I, I think the way it works is I grew up in a situation where it was pretty clear to me that I was, quote, supposed to be a doctor, but I actually didn't really like it. I I don't think I particularly felt the, com- the compulsion to help people, as my mother would say. Um, 
And I had a lot of questions about the way medicine was practiced, even really before I knew anything about it. So I basically tried to do anything but do medicine. And so that led me to uh, actually uh, learn gardening and teach gardening in Swaziland in Southern Africa. And happened to, when I went there and was living in a very rural hut, I ended up getting exposed to the work of Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy and Weston Price on the, basically the history and the use of traditional diets and why when people stopped eating traditional diets, they basically had their health deteriorate. And it was sort of like a light went off that the medicine that I had this sort of inner sense that I should do but didn't want to do, um, in a sense, it was a vindication because I ended up thinking it's that kind of medicine I don't want to do, <laughs> but a kind of medicine that's, I would say, realistic and honest and looking for real causes of people's health troubles. That was actually very exciting to me. And so now I've spent literally 40 years pretty much every day investigating why people get sick and what they should eat and what they should do about it. <laughs> so, so there you go. So Tom, you said that you felt like growing up you were supposed to be a doctor. Have you got doctors in the family? Is that what was the what was the drive or the the push you felt in that regard? Yeah, uh, my father and grandfather were dentists, and literally, I'd say ninety percent of their friends were doctors. <laughs> and so, uh, even at age fifteen, sixteen, I would be following around doctors and until they basically kicked me out for asking questions that they didn't want to answer. And and so obviously you had a bit of a different approach of where you wanted to go. Did did you have any uh did you have any health challenges yourself along the way? Like has has this played out in your life in any way? Or was it really that there was just that compulsion that you wanted to learn and that, you know, you obviously discovered this way of uh dealing with health that really fitted with your philosophy, you know, was it a sort of philosophical decision for you or was there some sort of personal journey you went on as well? You know, uh, it's a good question. And I would say I've been actually remarkably healthy with one very minor exception, which really doesn't have much to do with all this. Um, but I mean, I had the usual sort of acne, which cleared up almost immediately with eating a traditional diet before even anybody knew the word. Back in uh, the the uh, late, uh, sorry, the late seventies, early eighties. I mean, I was doing uh, organic, natural foods diet before you could even get the food, really. <laughs> um, and and that cleared up my acne, and maybe I had a little constipation, but I've never actually had any major health troubles. So it was it was not because I had to figure out a way to help myself. If, if you were like pre-organic food, you must have been like, you know, pre-Big Bang or something. I mean, it's... Yeah. <laughs> organic was, food's been I, around forever. Just, you know, a modern a modern reincarnation of it, perhaps you've been before. <laughs> I was an original in this. And I've been doing, you know, <clears throat> natural, holistic, you know, I call it proper medicine. And I can tell you why if you want. But uh, since basically the early 80s. So that's a long time. Yeah, nice. Well, obviously, Dr. Tom, you, Dr. Tom, you, you may well be aware of you know some of the stuff that's going on in Australia around health and medicine, and um, certainly you know some of the 
integrative doctors over here in Australia are, are getting under some pressure uh, because of some of the you know the skeptic groups and the the registration boards around you know what they are and aren't allowed to say about medicine um, and particularly as a chiropractor that's really playing out now at the moment so um, <laughs> just as a bit of a pre-frame we need to be careful sometimes of what we say and, and about medicine because um, we can get in trouble for doing that sometimes. Having said that, I'd love to know what uh, <laughs> your definition of real medicine, because I would love to hear what that is. Yeah, no, I didn't know that, and uh, it's. I can only tell you that it's usually hard for me to be careful. I sort of try, and it lasts maybe two minutes. <laughs> that'll do. That'll do. And I ended up just. I say what I say, and I let the chips fall where they may. I guess so. I hope I don't get you in trouble, and I don't think I will. Perfect. Um, the, the, the best example I can use is I often tell my patients, and when I, I do a fair amount of lecturing about this, that the job of the doctor is to distinguish between the therapy and the disease and not confuse the two. And the, the simplest example that I've given in probably a million times is if you get a splinter in your finger and you don't take it out, then the next thing that happens is you get pus. Now, the question is, if you go back to medical school training, we learn that pus means infection, means bad, means kill it. So, therefore, you would do give somebody, say, an antibiotic to get rid of the infection that's causing the pus. Now, anybody looking at that situation could easily understand that, in fact, the pus is the therapy for the splinter. The splinter is actually the disease. And the pus is the therapy. And if you confuse the two, a very predictable thing happens, which is you may get rid of the pus, but the splinter will stay there, and it'll happen over and over again. Uh, and you'll turn this acute situation, which would have healed easily, into a chronic situation. And one could say, well, nobody's sort of dumb enough to make that mistake. <laughs> But the reality is that mistake is made probably 100,000 times in doctor's offices across the United States and I would imagine Australia. Because imagine this, person comes in who smokes, which is like putting splinters in their lungs. And then they twice a year get bronchitis, which is pus, mucus, cough, fever, etc., getting out the splinters from their lungs. They go to... Uh, you know, wonderfully trained doctor, and he says, aha, you have bronchitis, here's an antibiotic that will stop it. And then they go on to have their bronchitis twice a year and smoke and put debris in their lungs, and then they get lung cancer, which I know this is a little simplistic, but there's some interesting research on this. Um, lung cancer is a bag of debris in your lungs which you were unable to get out. Now, why were you unable to get out? Because, <laughs> because your doctor stopped it. And that's the problem with medicine. I mean, there's a lot of other problems too. But they're completely confused as to what the cause of diseases are. And so, therefore, they end up pretty much always taking a very superficial tact and getting rid of of what's usually the body's therapeutic attempt. You know, it even gets into things like high blood pressure. So you have a, a person whose circulation is weak. 
the natural response to that is to narrow the tubes. Because if you narrow tubes in any flowing water, you increase the intensity and the strength of the flow. That's not the disease. It does, of course, increase the pressure. Uh, but the doctors then come and decrease the pressure, and that decreases the flow and causes other troubles. And the, what I tell people and I tell my patients is the dead giveaway that you're not treating the problem, that you're treating, in a sense, the response or the solution, is the problem never goes away. And if you go down the list of all the diseases, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they never go away. Now, you can stop the symptoms for a while, usually with pretty toxic stuff, but the symptoms never go away. And another thing that's interesting about this is the tragedy of medicine, at least in my opinion, is not necessarily that we can't get rid of all the diseases of all the people. I mean, that's very difficult. Mm. Uh, but the problem is, A, we don't try, and B, we laugh at and denigrate the people who do. <laughs> that's the problem. Because if you go in with, with asthma and you say, so he gives you things to stop you from wheezing. Of course, you always wheeze, and you'll wheeze the rest of your life. And if you say, doctor, isn't there something I could eat, something I could do, some exercise, some I could hang from my foot, you know, I could get my back mm. scratched, whatever. And that would teach me, teach me, my body, my whatever, my soul, whatever you want to say, not to have this trouble anymore. They will laugh you out of the office. They say that doesn't happen, which yeah. is ridiculous. I mean, anybody who says that, I tell people you should run out of the office. Yeah, and we see that all the time where people go to their health practitioner, whoever that may be, and say, you know, I've been making these certain lifestyle changes. I've been making these dietary changes. I've been making these exercise changes. You know, I seem to be getting good results. What, you know, and you hear stories all the time of people who are then told, well, no, it can't be that. No, it wasn't that. You know, no, I don't think you should do that. And it's like, well, you know, this is working for these people, yet, yet often they've been told because it may be slightly different to what's seen as the norm or what's seen as the mainstream that they're sort of, they're told that well that that's they shouldn't do that or that's not what's causing the results they're getting. So it right. can be frustrating or, for people, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Or that you know, it's I, I another thing I tell patients if if a patient comes in and says I have lupus and I drank cat urine and now I'm better, my response is where'd you get the cat and how much did you drink? <laughs> uh, because it may be that it's only certain cats and you have to drink at a certain time or whatever. And it may be nonsense. It may be coincidence or something. But if I see it and I have, you know, a person in front of me who's saying that, I want to know what they did. Yeah. And just because I don't understand what happened, I mean, <laughs> if we if we got rid of all the things that I don't understand, uh, yeah. that that's terrible. I mean, well, you know, I think I think that's that really comes back to two things we really need to rediscover in healthcare. And one is humility, you know, understanding that we don't know what we don't know. 
and that there's still, you know, as, as smart as we think we are, there's still a lot that we don't know. You know, I think if we went back a decade, or let alone, you know, a couple of generations, then, you know, probably the doctors then were just as confident they knew everything as the doctors now are confident they know everything. <laughs> um, but, but really, we need to get back to that humility of realizing that we don't know everything, and that's okay. And you then, almost nothing. Yeah, and then the other thing is, is that what you're talking about is curiosity. You know, I think if we, if we could maintain humility and curiosity in medicine, it would go a, such a long way to, to bringing down all the barriers we're seeing and all the infighting we're seeing between, you know, Western medicine and alternative medicine. And, you know, I, I think if we could just have a bit of humility and a bit of curiosity, then I think everyone would go a whole lot better. Yes. And, and you know, I'm the first one to say if the pus is going to eat your finger, I would get rid of it too. And if yeah. the bronchitis is going to kill you, I give you an antibiotic. Yeah. I do that too. But exactly. first of all, that doesn't usually happen. And you know, they built a whole edifice around these these worst case scenarios, which actually rarely happen. I mean, I used to be an ER doctor for a while just to supplement my income, and I I know ER <laughs> medicine. I and they're just mostly hysterical. Uh, the other thing, just like you say, is another thing I tell a lot of patients is the, the main thing I remember from medical school was day one when the guy got up there and said, just remember the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest nephrologist. Oh, I love that. And that, that because if you think about it, anybody, even a person with a failing kidney, you can eat a carrot and then somehow you reabsorb most of what you need from the carrot through your bowels or through eventually your urine. And that's yeah. a very complicated thing, which we don't actually know how to do. Yeah. We have dialysis machines that approximate it a little bit, but you know, then the people get dialysis dementia and it doesn't really work. So we don't know how to do, how to be a kidney. Yeah. Even this dumbest kidney, even a failing kidney does pretty well. I love that. I, love, I say the similar sort of thing to my practice members when they come in to see me in the practice and I'm explaining to them that it's their body that does the healing, you know, and I, I explain to them that there are 300 trillion messages that go from their body back to their brain every second, you know, so I say, well, look, I can't think those for you, you know, 300 trillion a second, you know, you, you're going to have to do that yourself, you know, I can remove some interference, but I can't, you know, I can't do the healing for you, only your body can do that healing, so, so on the same wavelength there, Dr. Tom, I love it, so, Tom, you know, you've spoken about Weston A. Price, you've spoken about uh, Rudolf Steiner, and many people listening to this episode will already know all about, particularly probably Weston A. Price, maybe less so Rudolf Steiner's work, uh, but I'd love to hear about both of those from you. So starting with Weston A. Price, um, for those who aren't aware, tell us a bit about Weston A. Price and what he's about and what he's up to. I mean, it's very simple because, um, you know, and, and again, a lot of patients, a lot of people, all they say, the first thing they say about diet is, oh, there's so many opinions, I don't know who to believe. Should I be raw food? Should I be a vegan? Should I be eat a ketogenic and, diet? And they you know? change all the time depending on what the research came out yesterday, right? Right, exactly. The first thing I say is if you're 60 and you don't know what to eat, that's a problem because you ought to be, been able to figure it out by now. Um <laughs> The second thing is, at the end of the day, uh, the question to ask is not who has whatever scientific, meaning usually bogus, explanation about what's right, but 
if you go around and find the people with the best health, which is what Price did. So the guy's a dentist. And the good thing about being a dentist with this is you can make a definition of what perfect health is, which is you go through all your entire life with your all your teeth intact, no cavities, no dental deformities, no needing braces, no none of that stuff. And it's much easier than if you were a liver specialist and say, I'm going to go around the world looking for people with perfect livers because actually, how would you know? Um, so it's easy. You just look in their teeth. And he found 14 groups of people all over the world. And if you know food, it turns out they all ate pretty much the same thing. And then you can say, uh, well, that's the human diet. Now, if somebody says, no, the human diet is only raw foods. So I would ask myself, so, and mind you, these people that Price studied, not only did they have perfect teeth, but they had no heart disease, they have no autoimmune disease, they have no cancer, they have no arthritis. They basically lived their life without disease. So then somebody says, no, I should, uh, I should be eat only raw vegan. And I say, so who did that and how did it work? Yeah. And the answer is nobody. Yeah. The reason is because if you do that, you eventually become infertile and then you die out, which is fair enough because that's not the right way to eat. So all the rest of the diets, so-called diets, the, <laughs> there is nobody you can point to. There's a lot of research and this does this, etc. But this is the only true epidemiological study that here's what the people with the history of the best health did. Here's what they ate. If you know food principles that, which I can explain if we want, then that's the same diet. It just, it's just, there are different variations on the theme. Yeah. And it makes sense to me. Like it, it doesn't make sense that we could have evolved to require a particular diet that we weren't actually doing. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective, does it? Correct. Right. That, that these, are, these are the people who basically figured out the rules. Yeah. And if you figure out the rules, you basically, it's like, you know, a lion or something. If a lion eats, you know, uh, soy burgers, they get sick. And if a lion eats lion food, whatever that is, like meat... They generally, if they live in the wild and they don't get trapped and nobody sprays DDT on them and stuff, they're fine. You know, elephants don't lose their teeth and have dental decay, uh, except if they don't eat elephant food. Mm. Now, some people, when they hear me, they say, oh, lion, food for lions, that's meat. So therefore, we should eat meat which whether or not we should eat meat is a different story, <laughs> not because lions eat meat. It doesn't mean, like, I've heard the argument for vegetarianism is, look how strong elephants are. Mm. Yeah, but they're elephants. So that's not the point. It's like cows have six stomachs, so they eat different stuff to us, right? Right, they eat different stuff. (laughs) We evolved to eat, you know, basically the the Western Price diet, which is very simple. And if you do that, it really dramatically 
impacts people's health in a positive way. So, so let's talk about the Western Price Diet because I know you know we had a, we had a great interview where we spoke about this with Cindy O'Meara on one of our shows, and uh, and we talked about you know these different cultures throughout the world, and you know there are tribes in Papua New Guinea which are you know eighty percent um, vegetable root vegetables. You know there there are there are people up in you know the Arctic Circle who are really consisting predominantly on blubber. You know, and and then there's a whole range in between. So, so what are the common themes amongst all of these different diets, and and what's the Western A price diet? So at the end of the day, uh, there are there are differences, of course, uh, but there's basically three food groups. Uh, there's animal foods, and by that I mean full fat, local, whatever grows in your area. And that includes everything from the blubber you were talking about to insects. And some people ate snakes and gophers and cows and buffalo and and wild fish, etc. And always it's, you know, the healthiest of the animals around. And it also, some of the people that Price studied also ate dairy products. Now, the, those dairy products were from cows that only ate cow food, which is grass. And they always used the fat mostly and the uh, skim part less. And they always cultured it. So mm. there's some rules with how to do each of these. But basically, if you're living by the sea, you eat you know oysters and wild fish and salmon and sometimes land animals. And if you're living in other places, you know, the Arctic Circle, it's, it's, you know, more fat and uh, more whales and all that stuff. But it's all it's all the same group. So that's one group. The second group, and by the way, uh, one of my points of this, of what I'm speaking about now, and I wrote a booklet about this as well, which is on my Dr. Cowan's Garden website, is over the past 30 years, largely because of uh, nourishing traditions and Sally Fallon and the Western Price and then the paleo movement, we're getting closer and closer to having appropriate animal foods. You know, native people ate buffalo and wild Mm. fish, and we can have wild fish, not quite as good, and cows that eat cow food. So we're we're getting there. We're getting the animal part right. And we're getting full-fat dairy products, which we can culture ourselves or butter, ghee, all that stuff. Uh, that's one, one food group. The second food group is seed food. And over the years, it could be seeds from trees like nuts and almonds and cash, you know, cashews and you name it. Uh, uh, pine nuts were a favorite food in Native America, uh, acorns, etc. Uh, and then evolved into the traditional heirloom, non-hybridized grains. Now, one of the things about seeds is seeds don't like to be eaten. The, the plant doesn't want animals to eat their seeds, obviously, because then it won't grow into a new whatever. So they, the, the plants put anti-nutrients in their seeds. And these taste bitter and inhibit digestion. And that's why you can't go and eat a, a plain acorn. And frankly, it's why you can't go and eat plain rice either. The, even the rice plant, not as much, but it puts anti-nutrients in 
the seed to protect it from being eaten. But one of the things that all the people that Price studied do is they basically ferment or soak or sprout or somehow recreate the sprouting conditions. Like if you're a, an oak tree, you make an acorn, it grow, it falls in the ground, it sprouts, the anti-nutrients are converted into sugars, and then it sprouts into a new tree. And that's why squirrels bury their nuts, because they read Price's book, and they know they should bury them before they eat them, and they lose some, and those are the ones that grow into trees, and they get rid of the anti-nutrients. So all the entire seed category should be sprouted, soaked, etc. Some people are better off not eating grains and eating nuts and seeds, but there's almost always some seed category in traditional diets. And the so, third, yeah, go ahead. No, no, that's exactly what I was going to ask. The third category. <laughs> the third category is uh, basically other plants and what we would call vegetables and fruit, and about eighty percent vegetables. And this, this, here's another misconception. From my take, the the calorie food, the protein, fat, carbohydrate, was always from the first two categories. Sometimes it was from starchy roots. Sometimes it was from fats and proteins. But the first two category is where you get fats, proteins, and carbohydrates and starches. The third category, plants, uh, vegetables, and fruit, about 80% vegetables, is like vitamin pills. That's where vitamins, minerals, mm. phytonutrients, antioxidants, things that basically protect the plant from disease, and humans have evolved to use those same phytonutrients to protect us from disease. Now, one of the mistakes that people make, especially not to pick on vegans, but they are some people who, quote, eat well. They sit down and eat a big salad of raw kale. And that's, they call it a traditional diet. Now, I have nothing against kale, but I can guarantee you that traditional people did not sit down and have a lunch of raw kale. Because the kale is is used as a small condiment, essentially, in the context of a huge diversity of other vegetables. In fact, uh, some of the traditional people have been studied ate 120 different vegetables a year and about 15 a day. Wow. Whereas Americans, maybe Australians, eat about 12 a year, and that includes uh -huh. ketchup and potato chips. Yeah, well, we've got so, a campaign over here, which is go for two and five. So the government recommends you should get two pieces of fruit and five vegetables, five servings of vegetables a day. And that's not even different ones. That's just the same one. Right. <laughs> that, and that, that in, in, you know, interesting for me, even the paleo, you know, again, the first two are pretty much easily available, the seed food and the animal food. But if you look at the traditional diet, uh, the people that Price studied, the paleo people, you know, basic traditional diets. There was no broccoli and romaine lettuce in there. First of all, those weren't really hybridized until the 1800s anyways. And it was basically too much work. So they ate perennial vegetables and 
different roots and leaves and tree leaves, etc., that they could forage. And they ate a huge diversity every day almost. Even the Eskimos would sometimes eat uh, plant food in the stomach of the caribou. So the plant food was already digested. Um, and they ate, even the Eskimos living where they, where they were, had a much more diverse plant diet. That's how you expose yourself to different colors, different parts of the plant, different phytonutrients, different antioxidants. And as far as I can tell, we're completely missing the boat on that. Even most of the people in the paleo and traditional foods movement are still never eating wild vegetables, mm -hmm. never eating uh, perennial vegetables, eating not, you know, not eating the root and the leaf and the fruit flower every single day because it's just not available and it's too yeah. much work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm listening to that thinking I'm definitely in that category. That, that's I'm definitely guilty of that. So uh, this is fascinating, Dr. Tom, but we are running out of time very quickly. And I did want to ask you about... Um, about Rudolf Steiner because uh, you know this is something that, that people will be interested in. I've read, I can't remember if it was a book by him or about him, but I've read books on Steiner and found it fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about Steiner's approach? I mean, Steiner comes from a whole different stream of a more philosophical and more esoteric. And basically, it's just a different picture of the human being uh, from a, a much more, I guess you could say, spiritual point of view, which then he applied to the curriculum of education, which became Waldorf schools, and he applied the thinking method, which is really what it is, to how to grow plants and how to farm, which is biodynamics, and then how to treat human beings, which became anthroposophical medicine. And there's a whole lot of rules on that and things that we can't get into, but it's, it's really a different thinking process, which you know, that little example of what the illness is versus the therapy, in a sense, is a kind of a anthroposophical way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is a very different and sort of holistic approach. I mean, the thing that sticks in my mind as I was reading the book was about, I can't even remember what it was, but there was something you had to put into a sack at, and bury at the end of the row of your vineyard, I think it was, at a certain yeah. time of the month or a certain phase of the moon or... I can't remember yeah. exactly what it was, but but that sort of, you know, there's a very holistic and, and almost spiritual side to it, isn't there? Yeah, but that that's what you're talking about is the biodynamic preparations, which yes. is a kind of treatment of the earth. Yeah. And, you know, it, it all sounds crazy and it all says, you know, what what is he talking about? But, you know, interestingly, I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think in, in places in Europe, it's like 20% of the vineyards are biodynamic mm. now. And... The entire reason they do that, the entire reason, not because they're esoteric philosophers, it's because A, the wine tastes better, and B, they make more money because they don't have to use chemicals. Yeah. That's so, it. So it works, basically. So it works. So they do it. <laughs> if, if it. If you save, you know, half a million dollars by bearing a few staghorns, then so be it. <laughs> Makes sense. No, makes sense. Like, who cares? Now, Dr. Tom, before we go, I want you to talk just a little bit about Dr. Cowan's garden because you've got some products and some powders that you have available now. Um, how did that come about? So it came about because I decided 20-some years ago that I was going to eat 120 vegetables and 15 a day and every day eat roots, leaves, and fruits and flowers. 
and wild and perennial. And, and then you got exhausted. And I got exhausted. <laughs> I kept growing more and more things. And I, as, I, as I sometimes jokingly say, I, I, I wanted my patients to do that, and I was left with three patients who could do it. Um, so that wasn't a very good model for how to run a, uh, a practice. Or So we decided, we being my children and my wife and I, to uh, grow or source these vegetables, dehydrate them into powders, put them into blends, and get the most uh, interesting old-fashioned varieties, the, mo the biggest blends of roots, leaves, and fruits, and, you know, perennial vegetables, tree collards, ashitaba, things people never heard of, that all are, are in a sense, recreating as best we can uh, the traditional approach to vegetables. And not only do these things taste amazing because they're basically the distillation of kale or chard or carrots, beets, zucchini, etc., or you know, ashitaba, you know, tomatoes, salt, etc. But they make the, the ability to create diversity doable in a way that, as far as I know, it's otherwise not doable. Now, that sounds great. I'm going to have to give these a go, I reckon. So they're available at your website, which is drcowansgarden.com. Um, yep. Many of our listeners will be in Australia. Are they able to order and get delivered to Australia? We've had a little trouble with international shipping. <laughs> I think we have it worked out. Nice. All right. Uh, Exciting. I, I just want to tell people, too, that we we grow a lot of things, not all of them. The rest of them we source from local, you know, the best quality organic farms that we can. And we run out because there's only so many tree collards grown in Northern California. Uh, so... We grow as many as we can. We have our friends trying to grow them, etc. We put as many as we can. We really want people to be patient with us. Uh, we, we're making as many as we can. Uh, and we're really trying to help people with this diversity. Well, that, that's a great problem to have, Dr. Tom. It's great to hear that people are getting involved and, and getting on board. So people that want to find out more about you, as I said, they can go to drcowansgarden.com. Uh, they can find your practice at fourfoldhealing.com. Um, you're on Facebook, which is Dr. Cowan's Garden, and also on Instagram, which we believe is Dr. Cowan's Garden, but Dr. Tom wasn't quite sure. Not, not as Instagram savvy as, as some of our listeners, and yes. you know, maybe not, not as quite as into the selfies and those sort of things, perhaps. But you can find out all the information there. So thanks for coming on board, Tom. It's been a great chat. Okay. Thank you, Brett. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.